when I was a kid and always trying to find the right pencil um, and keep it sharp enough. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking classes still and I'm online and I'm, I'm using this big notebook so I can write really big so I can actually read my handwriting so I can look at my notes later. And I've got, next to me, I have a pencil sharpener and I'm sharpening that thing throughout the whole three-hour lecture. Um, and I remember as a kid trying to find the right pen to use because, you know, most of those, especially the, when they first came out with the felt tips, remember the felt tip pens, some of you, this is a history lesson for you, I understand that. But when they came out with felt tip pens, and they were nice and hard at the beginning, and then when you used them for about a week, they would get really soft, and, and it just looked like hieroglyphics, especially with the way I wrote. And so, different instruments are going to convey and communicate slightly differently. And so that is one of the reasons why I think we have uh, the different accounts of the Gospels, uh, particularly as when we're going to read this. If you remember what we just read in Matthew, John's going to read a little bit differently. Uh, John has a little bit different account, different memory, uh, different things that the Lord inspired him to place emphasis on and also different things that perhaps the Lord did not inspire for him to write. Therefore, they were left out of the narrative. And so that's important, I think, to, to remember as well. So John chapter 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Obviously, she was not a musician. Okay. So she went to the tomb early, uh, and while it was still dark, uh, definitely wasn't a musician, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now who is the other disciple? It's John, okay. John is always pictured in some of those little movies and such as kind of a young guy, probably in the prime of his life. He can run. Peter is always pictured what? Very big. I didn't say overweight, just very big. So it, I find it interesting that John, even being inspired by the Spirit of God writing this, just had to let us know he got to the tomb first. Well, who can't outrun Peter, for goodness sake, all right? But anyway... I'll talk to John about that when we get into heaven, and, you know, I'm sure he, there'll be an explanation that will more than suffice for me. But nonetheless, John runs ahead. He gets to the tomb first. And stooping down and looking in, he uh, saw the linen cloths lying there and yet did not go in. And then Peter came, following him. I can almost imagine him going full speed and almost knocking John down as he's stumbling to get to a halt before he gets into the tomb. Peter came, and he follows him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, we just want to let you know, just in case you forgot who, got, who, run the foot, who won the foot race, the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and he believed. And yet they did, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. 
Then disciples went away to their own homes, or that could probably be better translated, they went away to their own places because they were staying in Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jerusalem at the time, remember. They were from the Galilee, but they went to their own places. Probably both went back to the upper room. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture, as that you would impress upon us not only the the importance and the necessity of the resurrection, but how we are to respond to the move of your Spirit when we see things. How is it that we should believe? How is it that we should trust? So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us again by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It's interesting that this narrative starts out with Mary Magdalene. And she wasn't the only one who went to the tomb early. There was the, the other gospel accounts will, will, will show that there was a group of women probably going early because the Sabbath was over, which I find interesting because people make a lot of big deal about datings and times. Why did they go in the morning instead of at 6 p.m. the night before when Sabbath was technically over? I'll leave that for you. I'll let you think that one through. How's that? They're there on Sunday morning. It's the first day of the week. And, and Mary, in this particular passage, uh, she's almost as a representation of the other women. They go to the tomb. They really find that the tomb is op- has been opened. The stone has been rolled away. And they're told that Jesus has risen. The first thing she does, and she goes and she gets the apostles. Don't you find it interesting that only John and Peter went to the tomb? Ever think about that? Now, if I was one of the 11, because Judas is not in the picture anymore, I would have been curious. I probably would have tried to outrun John, let alone P- Peter's no, no problem, right? But why didn't the rest of them go to the tomb? Remember what I talked about Friday is that, that they, no one expected the resurrection, even though at least three times in the different gospel narratives, we are told that Jesus said that he would, be, he, would be, he would die and that three days later he would resurrect. Nobody expected it. And as we go on through this, this, this narrative in verse 11, it says that Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stood stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, to to understand a little bit how how tombs in the ancient world worked, they would would create this cave, and then they would have this this rock type of platform, which was like like a bed, if you will, that the deceased would be laid upon. And so what you have here uh, is as she looks and looks at this stone bench, there's an angel where the foot would have been and there was an angel where the head would have been, which I find fascinating because that's a picture of the mercy seat. 
That's a picture of the, and it's like, wow, Lord, you just knit this stuff all together. Because the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, but right on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what? Two angels facing each other, touching wingtip to wingtip. And, and Mary, gosh, I hope, I hope somebody videotaped this. I really want to see this. That Mary saw this and, and saw this incredible uh, um, physical depiction. And, and, and again, sometimes the gospel screams very loudly and it says it very plainly, but sometimes it implies things. Mary's looking at this picture of the Holy of Holies of this, of this place where the mercy seat, and I'm sure that the, the, the mercy seat, the bench, was probably still covered with Jesus' blood. And the mercy seat was the place where the blood was applied. But the mercy seat was also the place where God said, I will come and I will dwell here, and it is here that I will meet with humanity. You see, what I, what I love about this is that, that God is always calling out to us. He's always speaking to us. And, and I think often it is that we're just really not listening as well as we should. All of us, I think, are in that position, myself included. And that, that God would cultivate in us a greater sense of an awareness of his voice and of the things that he is attempting to show us and to, to, to convey to us about his truth and how, how the Old Testament and the New Testament is so well knit together. And there are people who talk about, I'm on a roll here, but anyway, there are people who talk about the God of the Old Testament, he's this mean old dude. Sometimes they use different descriptors. I won't get into that for you. But he's this mean old dude. And then there's, there's Jesus, who's, who's the long-haired, bearded, hippie guy, you know, who's running around patting kids on the head and that kind of thing. It's the same God. And we, we have to reconcile this. Because in reality, there is a God who, the God can be wrathful, but he can also be very loving. And often as it is, and I've shared this with you before, in the Old Testament prophecies, the prophecies that were given of judgment were given as a warning and a calling for the people to do what? To repent. To change their direction. To, to leave their own selfish ambitions and, and to, to do an about face and to follow the Lord. Which none of us do well at times, which none of us do perfectly. But what's interesting here is you have people with partial knowledge. She's standing at the tomb. She's weeping. And what happens? She looks in and God gives her this incredible revelation. Now, I still don't know what it means. I've been a Christian for a while, but I still don't know what it really means. And I know, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a significance to it, but God, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself, the risen Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself first to whom? A woman. Now that may not seem as big of a deal today as it did then, but women were considered second, at best second class citizens. 
Jesus who comes along and says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come to me and I will do what? I will give you rest. And, and, and here Mary is weeping, and, and, but she sees these two angels and, the, and, and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they have taken my Lord or taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. What does that tell you about her? She was not expecting the resurrection. She thought, thought someone had stolen his body. And she wanted to know where they had laid the body of Jesus. She wasn't expecting about what, what she was about to encounter. Did she love Jesus? Absolutely. And I think she had an incredible love for him. No doubt confused. No doubt bewildered. No doubt heartbroken yet again. She'd already suffered through watching him die on the cross on Friday. If you want me to say Thursday, I'll say that for you. Okay, one of those days. Pick one, all right? Anyway, she'd already watched him die on the cross. And now the ultimate disrespect that someone would came and steal his body. No wonder why she was crying. And now when she had said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Don't you love it when Jesus does that? He's going to do it again on the Emmaus Road, okay? We don't have time to look at that this morning, Luke 24. He is standing there, and, and I love this because she thinks he's the gardener. Oh, a little bit more than the gardener, I suppose. But Jesus said to her, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Do you realize how important that question is? Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Now, who was she seeking? She was seeking Jesus but she was not expecting, she was not seeking out a resurrected Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. And it says that she thought he was a gardener. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have, take, have laid him, and I will take him away. Maybe she was hoping that he had an extra wheelbarrow. I don't know. I mean, think about it. She's going to pick up the body of Jesus and try to carry it back to the tomb. But sometimes such distress coupled with such intense love, people will do anything. And she had an intense love for Jesus and just wanted to honor him. Her knowledge is partial. Her heart I believe, was pure. Her knowledge was partial. She had a pure heart. Where are the guys here? They've gone back to t probably wake up the other ten, or excuse me, let me do the math, the other nine, excuse me. 
but she's here mourning again and hoping and being willing to do whatever it is that she needs to do to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. With partial knowledge, but with a pure heart. And so, I love this. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And then Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but, I go, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Wow. I love this about she finally recognizing him. And she no doubt grabs a hold of him and embraces him. And, and it's, the, the Greek is a little tricky in here where it's translated, uh, where Jesus says, do not cling to me or stop clinging to me, another translation. Uh, and, and it implies that, that after Jesus appeared to Mary, that he may have ascended to the Father, then come back down and seen the disciples. I'm not so sure that's really the case. Because he ascended eventually once and for all for what? How long? 40 days later. And he could have been talking about his eventual ascension. That This is a very difficult passage and, and every, every, everything that I read had a different version. Okay? So, in other words, your guess is as good as mine on this one. But it could have been, and I am speculating here, all right? So take it or leave it. And don't preach to me about it after the service, okay? But anyway, it could have been that Jesus was actually saying to her, and you're needing to learn now to learn to relate to me, live with me, follow me, be my disciple in a spiritual way because I am going to go to my Father. I am not, even though I've resurrected from the dead, I am not going to stay here on the earth for you to continue to follow me in the way that you previously have. We now have a new relationship. And I think that's fascinating because, because I think there are places in our lives where we hit these milestones and we turn these corners, whatever metaphor you want to use, where it seems that the Lord calls us into a new relationship with him. And I think in this instance for Mary, and, and I, I'm almost under the impression, and again, this is speculation as well, but I'm almost under the impression that, that had Jesus stayed on the earth, he would have never gotten rid of her. And I mean that, it's funny in a way, but it's, I mean that in a good way. I think she was that committed And she was one of the ones, if you remember, that were of the group of women that traveled around with Jesus and his disciples, and, and it was the women who took care of the guys, who, who, who 
provided the food and, and did and ministered to their physical needs. And I think Jesus was saying to her, you're going to relate to me now in a different way. In many respects, a deeper way than just the physical. But a calling into that spiritual, a calling into that transcendent relationship that we have as we trust Jesus, as we have given him our lives, as we follow him day by day, uh, not ever seeing him, but having the hope of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and the hope of the Bible who says that one day we will see him, we will know as we are known, we will see him face to face. And I think that's what Jesus was referring to here with Mary. So, he sends her off, go tell the rest of the disciples not only that the grave is empty, as she did earlier, but tell them that I've risen from the dead. That's so important because it's I, at times I hear among different circles within the church, they want to refer to the historical Jesus. And they don't want to recognize Jesus for who he truly is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, who came and died on the cross, which makes, as I've mentioned this many times before, made absolutely no sense to the Jews or to the Greeks. Didn't make sense to either one of them. And there are times, there are times, the times in my life that I feel that God has called me into things or to do things or, 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 or whatever it is. There are times that it, it, I think even in our future that God may call us into things that will make absolutely no sense and yet the Spirit of God is all over it. And while we may want to cling to that physical as Mary did. Jesus may be saying to us, stop clinging to me for I have not ascended to my Father. I'm calling you into a newer, deeper, fuller relationship. Because some of you, and I know your stories, and and, and I know what you're going through even now. And like you, I'm waiting to see how this is all going to play out and how this is all going to end. But the reality is, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the uncertainty, Jesus has said to each one of us, continue to follow me and I'm going to lead you into a deeper relationship. Such as it is in the book of Luke chapter 4 when he told the disciples, take me out into the deep. And often it is that we go through the trials and we go through the tribulations and the difficulties and I just wish that we could just pass all that up. Because I don't like them. I don't like it when you go through them. I don't like it when I go through it, okay? But it is in the midst of all those things that the Lord Jesus Christ says to us, I want to call you into a deeper, fuller, richer relationship with me. And it is in that process that he is faithful to complete that which he has uh, begun, as the book of First or uh, Philippians chapter 1 tells us. 
So I want to backtrack just a bit, just a few minutes, and go back to this foot race that ends at the tomb. John gets there first, and in verse 5 it says, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, and yet he did not go in. So it tells us in verse 5 that John saw. It tells us in verse 6 that Peter saw. It tells us in um, verse 8 that John saw a second time. So I want to take a look at those three words. There's actually three different words in the Greek, by the way. They're translated the same English word, but they're three different words in the Greek. John runs in. And it says that he saw, he saw the linen cloth, verse 5. Now, the Greek word translated saw in verse 5, I always hate to say this word because it just it makes me feel like it's, it's a silly word. It's pronounced silly. It's the word blepo, all right? You say it, never mind. Anyway, um, and it, it really is a very generalized word. It really means you clearly see something. But that, that's about the, the, the beginning and the end of that definition. He saw it. He clearly, John comes in, he clearly sees the linen cloths. So Peter then later comes stumbling in. You know, I, I'm, I read this narrative, I'm surprised there's not a stopwatch going here somewhere, really. You know, I mean, how long did it take for Peter to get to the tomb after John had gotten there anyway? Um, Peter comes in and it says that he, he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And it says that the handkerchief uh, that had been around his head not lying with the other linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. Peter comes in and he saw. The Greek word theoria, different word, T-H-E-O-R-E-O if you're spelling it. Theoria in the Greek means that you see it, but then you begin to think about it. You begin to contemplate. You begin to observe. You begin to scrutinize. In other words, Peter comes in, and he sees the linen cloths, and he, in, to paraphrase, he was thinking in his mind, what does this mean? Did they steal the body? Did Jesus resurrect? Something else happened? He begins to think. He begins to scrutinize. He begins to give it some thought. And then thirdly, John, verse 8, who had come to the tomb first, just want you to remember that, went in also and he saw and he believed. Third Greek word is the word for saw here in verse 8. It is the Greek word eido, E-I-D-O. It means to understand, to perceive the significance of. To understand, to perceive the significance of. When you understand something and you perceive the significance of something, then that becomes the basis for your belief. And that becomes the basis for your ability to have what? Faith. Say, our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is a response to 
not only the written word of God, but our faith is also a response to that which we have received from the Holy Spirit of God who has spoken to our spirits. And so, John looks in, he understands, he perceives, and the scripture tells us he believed. He believed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Which I find fascinating even in verse 9 where it says, for as yet they did not know again the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now that word must, little Greek lesson this morning, right? That, Greek, uh, that word must is the Greek word day, D-E-I, if you want to spell it in English. It means something that is absolutely necessary, something that's required, something that is binding. It's not optional. It is used in the Gospels in Mark 8, Luke 9, Luke 24, Luke 26, John 3, John 12. It is used in the Gospels when it is concerning this, the prediction of Christ's death and resurrection. The death was required. The resurrection was required. Because I like what, what Peter tells later in the book of Acts, that the grave could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. If you give just a quick thought to the crucifixion narrative and all the physical suffering and subsequent death of Jesus. The fact that the scriptures tell us that the grave, or Paul, Peter tells us later in the book of Acts, that the grave could not hold him. It was impossible, as he says, for the grave to hold him, says something about the nature of who Jesus is. That he was no ordinary man. That he was God incarnate. Jesus had already repeatedly foretold his resurrection. But, but, but the thing is, here's the thing, and this is to me, and, and I used to kind of take the disciples to task a little bit on this, but maybe I've just gotten older and mellower about it. I don't know. Uh, that's for you. Um, but nonetheless, what I have realized that even though Jesus foretold um, his own death and resurrection. Even, even though he had told everyone. The only people who, remember, who really recognized that were who? The Jewish leaders. If you read one of the other gospel narratives. They were well aware that Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead in three days. So they posted guards. And they wanted to make, and they even went to Pilate. Pilate said, make it as secure as you can. Because they were afraid that somebody was going to sneak in and steal the body and say, hey, guess what? He resurrected. Now we have this Gnostic type of relationship with Jesus. They remembered why. I mean, follow me on this, all right? 
because they had no skin in the game. In other words, they had no emotion at stake. They had no heart for Jesus. They wanted him dead. So I was like, yeah, we finally did what we set out to do. We put him on the cross. We killed him. Let's just make sure no one steals the body. So they remembered him. They remembered what he said about his resurrection. But why did the disciples then forget? Why did they forget that the, 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 the enemies of Jesus remember? Because at times when you are in the middle of the emotion of the situation, all those things end up going out the window. And isn't it the grace of God who gently calls us back and gently reveals himself to us over and over and over again. He understands our frailty. The scripture says he understands that we are just, we are, we are but vapor, but dust. He understands that about us, and because the disciples had a heart for Jesus, they had, a, they had skin in the game, if you will, being overcome by the emotion of the moment of the death of Jesus Christ, all of that stuff just went out the window. Which I believe is so normal. I really do. In other words, what I'm trying to tell some of you is quit trying to be, quit being so hard on yourself. Jesus knows who he got when he saved you. And I'm glad he did because I know, I know at least in my own case, if he, if he didn't know what he got when he saved me, he would have traded me in later. And some of you, I know he would have traded you in even earlier. So there, how's that, all right? But I love not only the power of the resurrection, but the gentleness of the Lord revealing his resurrected self to his followers. See, that's meekness, right? Meekness is defined as strength under control. Meekness is really incredible power that is handled with a sense of gentleness. See, that, that's, that's stewardship. Sometimes we don't handle power well, do we? I'll look at the ceiling, not make any eye contact. All right. Because he first took the, the seeing, the saw, the blepo of John, and he began to speak to it. He also took the theoria of Peter, and he began to speak to it. And then we see it come to fruition in John, where when John Edo, he saw again a second time, he understood and he perceived the significance And that's how the Lord pursues you. That's how the Lord pursues me. You don't always get it the first time. 
if I can be so bold, you probably rarely get it the first time. I know I rarely get it the first time. The only thing about knowing that you don't get it, there are still things that I don't get that I don't even know that I haven't gotten yet. Does that make sense? But the creator of the universe comes in the flesh and he dies for your sins and for my sins. Past, the ones you did this morning, the ones that you will do after you leave. And he gently but continually and faithfully calls you to himself. Amen? That is the power of the resurrection. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the faithful one. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to call us. That you were so long-suffering. Lord, sometimes we're just dense. Sometimes we're rebellious. And yet you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the resurrection, knowing also that as Paul told the Philippians, you've also called us into the fellowship of your sufferings. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that work in our lives as you continue to mold us, to shape us, to form us, to conform us into the image of you. And that we would become much more like you and much, like, much less like our carnal selves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Desperate.